Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Just like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with the service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. What's going on, everyone? It's Friday, February 18th, and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm your host, Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Juliet Bennett-Ryla. And our special guest today is a longtime investigative journalist. He's written on everything from Texas pipelines to the Kansas housing market. He's also a scholar of 90s hip hop, and he's a staff reporter here at The Hustle. Mark Dent, good to have you with us. Hey, Zach. Hey, Juliet. I'm uh, I'm pumped to be here. Thanks for having me on. Can we get a little freestyle action? I Maybe at the end. Maybe at the end. <laughs> it's been a few years since I've thrown down. <laughs> All right. On the agenda for today, we are going deep on Disney. Uh, the company just announced its intention to build a residential community for super fans out in the California desert. And we've got some really strong thoughts on this that you're not going to want to miss out on. Also on tap, how trick-or-treating inspired some entrepreneurs to start a map company, Belgium's big push toward the four-hour work week, and some pretty depressing stats about the U.S. housing market. But what's new on that front? But first, let's get you all caught up on today's news. All right. First up, it seems like every company from Ikea to Starbucks has announced price hikes in the past year. Well, we've got a new victim to add to the list. Safe sex. Reckitt, that's the company behind Direct's Condoms, says that inflation is making its current prices unsustainable. And what's interesting here is that inflation has really become a scapegoat for a lot of the price hikes we've seen. But some analysts have said that those claims are a little trumped up. And those price hikes are actually really just subsidizing things like corporate pay packages. Whatever the case, Durex is no stranger to using words like inflation and packages. DoorDash shares surged by more than 20% on Thursday after the company beat revenue expectations in its earnings report. It posted $1.3 billion in revenue last quarter, and it expects to reel in about $12 billion in gross order value in the first quarter of 2022. The platform's most ordered item is French fries. So we did a little back of napkin math here. And if you laid out all the French fries you could buy with $11.8 billion end to end, it would be about 7.4 million miles long. That's 15 round trips to the moon, in case you were wondering. On the note of food, thousands of cans of Cincinnati's famous brand chili are being recalled amid reports that customers are finding something other than chili inside their cans. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that some of the chili cans in question actually contained cream of chicken soup instead. Why is that a big deal? Well, the soup contains things like milk, wheat, and soy. And of course, in the wrong mouth, those can be deadly allergens. And last thing here, Apple is facing a potential shareholder revolt against Tim Cook's $99 million pay package last year. That's a huge increase from his $15 million package in 2020. And get this. It's nearly 1,500 times the average Apple employee's compensation. Now, there's some bigger context here. For a pay package to pass at a publicly traded company, at least 50% of shareholders need to give it the green light. Historically, that's never been much of an issue, but last year, a record number of S&P 500 companies 
Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, Halliburton, GE, and Intel, name a few, they all fail to get that 50%. So the tides do seem to be turning a bit, and Captain Cook is going to have to navigate those choppy waters. That's going to do it for the news. Let's get into today's big story. Okay, so Disney is known to have some pretty hardcore fans, but this is really a next-level announcement. The company is developing a series of master-planned residential communities called Story Living, and the first one of these communities is going to be called Cotino. It's smack dab in the middle of the Coachella Valley Desert in California. Juliet, you want to fill us in on Cotino? Uh, What's the big draw here, and what's the promise of this community? So apparently it will have 1,900 housing units and it'll offer a selection of estates, single family homes and condos. There's going to be a section for residents that are 55 and older. They'll get kind of an exclusive luxury lifestyle. They'll have access to a private beach on the community's 24 acre lagoon. In case you don't know, there is not a lagoon there right now. Oh, wow. It is the desert. So Disney will be building this lagoon. There will be recreational activities and other year-round Disney programming that they can enjoy. It's not clear to me what storytelling is in a residential experience, but I mean, Disney's very immersive. You go to the park, you go on a cruise, it's immersive. They also have that new Star Wars hotel where you can just live inside of Star Wars for two nights or whatever. So maybe there's hmm. maybe there's something there. Hmm. And I, I, I read something that the, the cast members, which is what they call their employees, will actually serve as the concierge. So wow. I would assume it's just very pleasant all of the time, like the Truman Show. So like Disney describes this as, quote, an energetic community with the warmth and charm of a small town and the beauty of a resort. And I guess the goal here is to give residents kind of a permanent year-round Disney experience. But Mark, I want to bring you in here. This isn't Disney's first rodeo in the space, right? No, it is not. They've they've had a couple of planned communities before, and they had something called Golden Oak. That was 980 acres gated, just this resort property. And then they had Celebration in Florida, uh, which was, you know, 5,000 acres and kind of like this small town feel. And this this sounds a lot bigger, though, in the sense that Disney has already said this is going to be the first one, and they're planning to have more, assuming mm-hmm. that this one is successful. And it really harkens back, at least to me, like I was thinking immediately of like Epcot, uh, which was Walt Disney's original idea for a planned community. Epcot is actually an acronym for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Mm. And he had planned it all out to be like this city of 20,000 people. It was supposed to showcase free enterprise and have like this world market and maybe even some skyscrapers. (laughs) And this was in the 60s that he was planning it. And it was supposed to have like this grand monorail to take people around. But then he died, and then uh, <laughs> Disney was just like, uh, how about we just create this big silver ball and put a monorail in it? And and that's what Epcot is. Walt Disney was like a very strange dude, I just have to say. <laughs> yes. He had some very bizarre ideas about urban planning and, and communities, and it kind of reminds me in some strange way, even though I know it's different of like, you know, company towns, kind of building a town around a corporate identity or experience. Yeah, and, and it's, it's kind of like in those towns, you would have 
people with jobs, whether it was like, you know, Walmart in Arkansas, there used to be a lot of when there'd be like a big coal plant uh, here in Texas, where I'm living now, there used to be a lot of company towns built around those. And like you were saying, this is built around something, but it's it's much different. It's it's sort of like this sort of desire to be within the world of Disney. And and people have experienced that already in like cruise ships and, and just watching all the content that they can in movie theaters or on Disney+. Plus. And it's like people want to just have that every day now, potentially. And it's going to be obviously only very rich people who are going to have that every day. Right. But nevertheless, it, it's almost like, you know, Disney has taken this people joke or not even joke, but in business, they talk about vertical integration and owning like every part of the <laughs> supply chain. It's like, well, Disney is like, we're going to like have the houses that you reside in when you watch our content now. Mm. Right. It feels like LARPing the American dream. <laughs> it's like a, a fake pre-war community where everything's perfect and there's a cherry pie on the windowsill cooling in the breeze, mm. but it's all fake. <laughs> wow, you're really selling me on this, Julian. <laughs> yeah. And and like you said, Mark, these are not cheap homes. I mean, I think when when Golden Oak launched in 2013, the starting asking price was 1.7 million to live in the community. Yeah, and and these prices are are not available yet, but clearly they're going to be expensive. I was looking Rancho Mirage is the name of the uh Coachella Valley community where this is going to be located. And and I believe Disney himself had a home there, certainly in the Coachella Valley, and I think in Rancho Mirage. And the housing prices in Rancho Mirage this last month in January 2022, the average or the median sales price rather uh, was around 860000 And that's up from 520000 uh, just three years ago. And wow. Yeah, Rancho Mirage sounds like it would be a really rich area, and and certainly there are a lot of wealthy areas in in this part of the Coachella Valley. But um, I was looking it up; the median income there is only seventy eight thousand. So I do wonder what it's going to be like to just throw in this opulent lagoon, you know, <laughs> community uh, right there in uh, on on this part of the Coachella Valley. Yeah, and that's like more than double the median house price in the United States. And and I guess the other aspect here is like a lot of people think of Disney as an experience for children, but Disney adults are a flourishing business. Yeah, I know several of them. You know, people who get the annual pass, they go frequently. They do this um, thing called Disney bounding where you dress up like characters. You're not allowed to dress up like a character at the park in such a way that might confuse a guest to think that you are a cast member. But people kind of put their own spins on styles, like they might wear the same colors or something, and it's called Disney bounding. I have met people that are super into that and people that spend a ton of money collecting pins. There's like a private club at Disney that costs over $25,000 for an initial membership. I mean, people are really, really into it. And these are people who oftentimes do have a lot of money. Mark, right before we hopped on this podcast, you sent us a website called allears.net. And I'm just like scrolling through this right now. It's a community for Disney adults and it's got topics like what happens if you have dietary restrictions at Disney World's Star Wars Hotel or where's the best spot to watch Magic Kingdom fireworks. Breaking news, Disney World makes major change to face mask policy. So it's just like a digest of just straight up Disney news for adult connoisseurs the the new york times of disney and i feel <laughs> like 
When you do go to Disney World, as I've of course not been there in a long time, but as I've read, they everything is set up like with like the payment system and everything. You can kind of opt in to like really just let Disney control everything for you. And and it just seems like this planned community is just like the next step of that. So one thing that I think is interesting about this is how close this planned community is to the Salton Sea. Which the whole thing kind of reminds me of Bombay Beach, which is this now abandoned resort near the Salton Sea, which is an accidental man-made lake. Although there is some research that maybe suggests that had this not accidentally occurred, it might have naturally occurred anyhow. So this resort was super popular in the 1950s, but the problem was that the Salton Sea got so salty that it killed all the fish. And so obviously Mm. it smelled bad. It was no longer pleasant. By the 80s, almost everyone had moved out. And now it's just this creepy place you can go to feel like you are living in the (laughs) post-apocalypse. And it's also this huge environmental disaster because it's shrinking. And when all of that playa is exposed, the dust that's going to blow off of it is going to be extremely toxic and unhealthy. So it's just kind of this huge disaster. And it just reminds me of this Disney thing because here they are, they're going to build this lagoon in the middle of the desert. They do have, they're working with this Crystal Lagoons company that has some sort of filtration system that they claim doesn't take much energy and will work, but it just feels like a Bombay Beach 2.0 to me. I do wonder like how sustainable like just that desert climate is going to be for a community like this. And um, obviously it, it's also fairly remote. So it's going to have to be like a very localized community in terms of commerce and stuff too. Yeah. The only time I've ever been to Rancho Mirage was via helicopter because it was during Coachella and they didn't want to drive there because when it's Coachella, it's just traffic and everything's full. So I don't know. I've also been to Palm Springs in May and it was 110 degrees outside. So it's a strange place to build your perfect city. And a segment of this is going to be like the 55 and older. Like they've already said, we're reserving a a part Mm. for that. So it could just feel at the end of the day, like a retirement kind of village, (laughs) but just for people who really like Disney and don't mind 110 degree weather, which I guess is the Palm Desert for you. Yeah. And, you know, it caters to such a wealthy, affluent clientele that I wonder if this will be some people's winter home. Where does like the Disney part of this come in? Like, is it themed or are there like people walking around dressed like Snow White and stuff? That would be so weird. It is, though. Like they have not revealed all those details, but at least, you know, in some of the uh, stories that have been written and I was watching a video that Disney released about it, they are going to have these stories types of Disney events and storylines. And so when I was watching this video, they showed like people doing yoga on grass, which by the way, there probably won't be very much grass there because it's the desert, but it got me thinking. So like the yoga lesson, will it be like led by someone dressed up like Elsa? You know what I mean? Like, is, is that what they're going to do? Like, (laughs) I I don't know. Are they going to somehow try to just, you know, the whole story living aspect of it? Are they going to try to have the people who live there in some way, become part of some grand narrative of Disney? Who knows? You know, what's interesting is, I don't know if you watched WandaVision, but now that Disney owns Marvel, they had WandaVision on their platform. And in the show, she creates her fake perfect town and lives in it. And so I feel like it could be a WandaVision within a WandaVision. Life imitates art. And yeah, is is there Marvel? Is there Star Wars? Or is it just like regular OG Disney? On that note, let's move on here. Proxy, a platform for users to make and share custom maps. They just raised $1.2 million. That might not seem like an eye-popping sum of money, but this company has 
kind of a strange backstory, right, Juliet? Yeah, I love this origin story. So the two co-founders are Melinda Hockey and Chelsea Roney. They're two Seattle area moms. They are self-described business nerds and they met at Texas A&M like a decade ago. Chelsea has a background in marketing and startups, but Melinda is a former U.S. intelligence analyst with a background in spatial mapping. And so what happened was Halloween 2020, nobody could go trick-or-treating because, you know, COVID, and they didn't want people going house to house, touching a bunch of things that other people had touched. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were trying to do COVID-safe trick-or-treating, which in many cases was building some sort of chute, like a big pipe that basically went from your door to the sidewalk that you would put the candy in and it would, you know, gravity would take it down. So you could just hold your little basket out and you didn't have to touch anything or anybody. Wow. I'm like super out of the loop on trick-or-treating innovations. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And it, it was super cute because, you know, when you're a kid, nothing's cooler than going trick-or-treating and getting free candy. And then when you're told you can't do it, uh, devastating, right? So Melinda noticed that a lot of people were just kind of on Facebook or a neighborhood group saying, oh yeah, I made a shoot and I live here. And that wasn't really helpful to just have a cluster of addresses. So using her skill set, she made a map. Anybody could add to it. It was sort of this crowdsourced thing. And it grew to over 2,300 Seattle area homes, racked up 500,000 views. People, It was on the news. People started asking her if she could build other maps for them. So they decided to build a map company. It's called Proxy. It launched in the fall of 2021. And it's, it's pretty simple to use. It's kind of like you want to make a map. It can be about anything. It has a lot of customization options. So you can put your logo on it. You can change the color. You can add categories. Mm. So for example, if it's a Halloween map, you could say, oh, this is a candy shoot. This is just a basket I've let out. Or this mm. is a yard display that you can come take pictures of. And you can change the little icon to let people know what it is. So it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty easy to use. I tried it out. I had been making maps during uh, the onset of the pandemic as well. I was making maps of places where you could get tests or vaccines without a car. And I did find that sometimes Google was a little tricky for me to use and I couldn't quite do some of the things that I wanted to do. And it seems like this um, sort of solves some of those problems where you can just be like, hey, I'm gonna make a map, here it is. And mm. you can add to it or you can not let people add to it and you can just kind of customize it. So that's what they built. And, and what are some of the use cases we've seen so far? So I looked at a couple of maps that were pretty cool. Some influencers have been using it to create guides to their favorite things in a city or to ask other people to give their best suggestions for visiting a city. Seattle Station King 5 has a Best of Western Washington Awards every year. They made a map of its winner. One of the coolest use cases that I saw was there's these travel bloggers. They go by Traveling While Black and they help Black visitors to the Pacific Northwest find places to stay at or eat where they will feel comfortable. And they made a local guide. So a lot of the, these applications that we've seen so far, this seems to be a tool that can really be leveraged for local communities. Like Google Maps might be good for like surveying like an entire region or city or something, but this is like for a specific street, like a very detailed map of what your neighbors are doing or where certain things are. And I think what's really cool about it is they're going to build a mobile app with the funding that they just raised. Mm -hmm. And one thing they're going to do is allow people to layer maps. So let's say you are planning a road trip to Portland and you want to have these maps on your phone, but you don't want to just go to one person's map. Maybe you have best restaurants list from a local website that you want to plug in. Maybe you want to find a bunch of cheesy roadside attractions like the kind that would be listed on Atlas Obscura. You can actually layer those maps so when you're in a particular neighborhood, you can see all of the places near you 
that are within the maps that you chose. That's what I really thought was cool about it because I'm somebody who tends to explore on foot. And so if somebody gives me a list of 10 places and they're all over their city, I'm just not gonna be able to hit them up. But if I can make an itinerary and be like, okay, I'm gonna be over here on this day and these are the six things that I wanna see, that is something that I think is extremely useful. Okay, so moving on here, Belgium just approved a reform push that is going to allow workers to choose a four-hour work week. And under this new mandate, employees are going to be permitted to condense their work into four days and take that extra day for themselves. It's part of a big push to give workers more work-life balance protections. It's also going to include the right to turn off work devices and ignore messages after hours without the fear of repercussion. Mark, you've done some writing on alternative work schedules in the past. So I'm curious to hear what you make of this, but maybe also more broadly, is the four-hour work week a tenable solution to some of the overburdened work environments we've seen in recent years? I do think it's potentially a good start. And Belgium, of course, is giving their workers the opportunity to do this. And it it comes after a pretty widely disseminated study from Iceland last year, where some workers who had switched to, I believe, four days and about 36-hour work week had been found to be more productive and more happy, etc. But here's the thing, right? This four-day work week that is now in the news quite often it's been in the news really for like the last 50 years. Like like in the 1970s, there was a huge movement to four-day work week here in the U.S. among some, I believe, municipal governments. Um, you just had a lot of sort of private businesses trotting it out and a lot of academics studying it and saying they approved of it and everybody thinking, okay, the four-day work week is the wave of the future. And then it didn't happen like at all. Uh, same with right after the Great Recession. There was like a lot of movement to, or at least a lot of talk to the four-day work week. And it's just kind of always fizzled out. And I, I think that it's just not enough of an answer because the four-day work week is still a rigid schedule. You, know, you right. have these workers are still expected to do 38 hours. Uh, and it just still seems to me more of the same of what we have. Although, I, I mean, a three-day weekend is, is better than two, I, I think, for, <laughs> for people's health, no question. But it's still just too rigid. As you say, though, there is kind of a more dramatic solution to this, which is to just maybe abandon time in the workplace as a measurement altogether. Yeah, and people have done that. Like you said, I, I wrote about it um, not too long ago. And there was, for instance, like at Best Buy, Best Buy Corporate about 10, 15 years ago, this results-only work environment. And the leaders just said, hey, forget about your hours, forget about where you're working. You can work Mm. from wherever you want, whenever you want, just get your stuff done. And it was incredibly successful. People were more productive. They had a lot less conflict at home. And, And more importantly, for Best Buy at least, the retention was up huge. I, I think that the, the biggest reason that they were kind of switching to results-only work environment was to be more competitive uh, among some other companies that were taking away their employers. And, and that was no longer happening. And, and I just think that having, if you can separate time, then you can just sort of work as you need to and meld that in with the rest of your life. And, and actually, Juliet, I know because uh, I think we've talked about this months ago, but like you have like a, a really good sort of view on this because I feel like you do mix in work really well with like the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just don't think it is possible for me and probably a lot of other people to sit at a desk for eight consecutive hours and do brain work like reading and writing and mm-hmm. editing. And if I don't break that up, 
I will just be really bad at it. So I tend to be the kind of person who will get up first thing in the morning, read all my emails, reply to the things I need to reply to, and then I will go to the gym and then I will come back and I will do some more work and then I'll take another break and then I'll do some more work. A lot of times I work at night and it's just kind of like, I feel like I'm very privileged to be in a position where I can do the work when I feel the smartest (laughs) and not have to sit at a desk for eight solid hours because I will, I simply will run out of steam. Yeah. I think there's some work that came out recently showing that the, the true amount of time that someone can truly devote unbridled focus to work is like minutes. <laughs> it's like 10 <laughs> minutes or something. So this, this idea that we're just like sitting still for hours on end, intensely focusing and being super, super productive is maybe a little outdated now. Um, especially when we're sitting on computers all day and it's really just a minefield of distractions, really. Right, and and the things people have known this too. Like there's been studies showing this kind of limited amount of, of time we have for productivity. Uh, those studies have existed since like World War II. Uh, I mean, you're talking, right. you know, 70, 80 years ago. And I, I think that... The, the reason why the results only work environment at Best Buy, even though I kind of was just saying how it had those impressive numbers, it still kind of failed there because a new CEO came in and basically just said, all right, everybody, we got to get back to work. Like, like he didn't, he didn't think of it as work because, you know, they weren't on the clock. They weren't in the office and, and we're kind of seeing the same thing now, although, you know, return to work plans for some of the tech companies have been delayed by a little bit just because of the new variants of COVID and everything. But, you know, you saw Google and Apple and and their leaders kind of come out and say, back to the office, everyone, we, we got to get to cracking. And, you know, and Jamie Dimon uh, said that kind of thing as well. And, and so you just kind of have like this sort of pervasive view of management that sort of mm-hmm. thinks that we need to uh, fit within this rigid time frame because that's what they like and that's what they think works, even though... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of reasons why it does not. Well, step in the right direction for Belgium. Maybe someday they'll they'll consider a task-based model. Maybe they can consult you on that one, Mark. I'm open. I'm open. <laughs> All right, let's close things out here with, I'm sorry to drop this on you, everyone, but one more depressing stat. In 2021, one in seven single-family homes was snapped up by investors. This really surprised me. So Redfin came out with a big study of the 40 largest markets in the US. And that's the highest level of investor ownership in at least two decades. In the last three months of 2021, nearly 15% of all homes in those 40 markets were snapped up by investors like BlackRock, but also just like, you know, small time flippers and Airbnb proprietors. And this obviously comes in the larger context of a very crimped housing market what do you make of this trend? I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's it. I hate it. Mark, you recently bought a house. Did you have to contend with this during your search process? Like, were you going up against kind of big time investors? You know, I, I'm not sure because we didn't like see who the other people were who put in offers. But as I recall, so this was last fall and, and this is in Dallas, Texas. So a, a very hot housing market, although not California hot or anything like that. But it went for sale, I want to say, you know, on like a Monday or a Tuesday. And the realtor who was selling the house said all offers by Sunday at 5 p.m. or something like that. And and we were one of about a dozen, maybe 10 or 12 offers. And yeah, I mean, no clue if any of them were BlackRock because we can't really find that out. But it, it just it wouldn't shock me. I mean, with how houses were going here 
in uh, Texas, like you had buyers who it was certainly not uncommon for them to never even look at a house. Like they would be uh, sometimes people from California who were families and other times investors. And they would just see these houses in places like Dallas. Sight unseen. Yeah, sight unseen. They'd, they'd take like a virtual tour and be like, all right, buying this in Dallas or buying this in Austin. Yeah, I have friends looking for a house right now in Los Angeles, which is obviously its own problem. And they're going through the same thing where it's just they'll look at a house and then the realtor will sell, will tell them, oh, well, somebody else put in an offer that was $250,000 over the asking price. And that's got to be someone who that's their dream home. But mm-hmm. I think in a lot of cases, it is these developers or flippers just snatching up what they can. And the undercurrent here that makes this even worse is this is worse along racial lines. You know, in Redfin's analysis, they found that as many as 30% of homes in certain markets where the majority of the neighborhood was black went to investors compared to 12% in other zip codes. And the reason for that is, again, just these neighborhoods are historically undervalued by appraisers. So they're even more appealing to investors. Yeah, so so there's a lot a lot going on here, and of course this this all comes at a time when another report just came out yesterday that said that the average new mortgage just hit an all time record high. So the average loan size in America is four hundred fifty three thousand dollars now. This is the most expensive housing market in U.S. history. There are shortages across the U.S. Home prices were up eighteen and a half percent last year. We could just go on and on and on with these kind of abysmal stats about the housing market. But this influx of investor purchases definitely seems to be contributing to the chaos. Yeah. Great real estate market we have, huh? It's just <laughs> so, so wonderful. I'm going to rent this apartment until I die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if BlackRock buys the building, best of luck. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to The Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. I'm Zachary Crockett. Big thanks to Mark and Juliet for joining me today. And shout out to our producers, Darren Clark and Matt Brown. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more interesting tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. So if you haven't read our newsletter yet, give us a shot. That's thehustle.co. We'll catch you all next week.